As the founder of iconic brands like Dana Designs, Mojo Systems, and now Mystery Ranch, Dana Gleason has been making bags, packs, and outdoor gear for four decades. Yet, he stayed on top of the game with continuous innovation. Sometimes, that required a complete relaunch as a new brand. But his successful track record made me wonder, how does he keep adapting to changing needs, the changing retail landscape, and changing consumer habits? It's all here in this incredible episode, featuring my most charismatic guest yet. We covered domestic versus Asian manufacturing, quality control, the different types of customers, and who to watch out for, and when to fire your dealers all together. As he puts it, engage in the careful selection of customers. Get ready for a roller coaster of an episode. Welcome to the Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Dana, you have been in the outdoor industry for quite some time, and you started one of the more iconic brands, uh, I think you mentioned about 40 years ago, and now more recently have an outdoor equipment company called Mystery Ranch. So what I'm hoping you could do to start us off is just kind of tell us you know, a little bit about the your first brand and how that came to be and then what made you want to get back into it with Mystery Ranch. Okay. Tyler, I uh, have been at it for uh, a few decades here. The first brand uh, we brought about was called Clutterworks back in 1975. And uh, basically, I had spent... A few years previously, working uh, in shops in the outdoor industry, became a sales rep, which uh, helped me uh, deepen my uh, knowledge of how the business worked. And uh, actually, I uh, did most of my training by learning from uh, both my mistakes and the mistakes of others by taking in repair work at uh, some of the shops I worked at. Um I had uh, gotten myself a sewing machine and uh, done modifications on my own gear. And by then I had, well, an industrial sewing machine, so I kept on uh, doing it uh, for other people. And there is very little in this world more educational than fixing equipment or software or relationships, whatever business you happen to be in. Uh, than uh, simply coming to things with a bright new idea. Um, in any case, uh, the Clutterworks ended up uh, being something that I did not plan. Uh, I actually ended up with a week worth of time in between two trips moving uh, all of uh, me and my wife's stuff to uh, Bozeman, Montana. 
and uh, went from simply doing repairs and having built a little stuff more or less as custom work and ended up uh, doing about a month's worth of design work in an uninterrupted week and created the line we call Clutterworks. Now, this is my first business, and, you know, building backpacks seems pretty simple. Um, And relatively speaking, it probably is. But once you have created a product that is so good that, at least in your own mind, people can't not buy it, um, you're perhaps 20 to 25 percent of the way along to having a business just simply having created something that people beyond your friends would want and your friends will always tell you they'll want what you do uh it's uh it's uh strangers and people who uh don't know you from adam who will give you uh by far a better read especially if they offer up some money for what you're doing yeah, it's the real test, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it sure is. Uh, you know, that reality therapy uh, beats uh, years and years of concept work. Now, for myself with Clutterworks, uh, I also uh, ended up, you know, not really having a plan for how to get it to market. So we quite literally started selling first out of a trailer and then out of a storefront on Main Street in Bozeman in 75. And uh, it was three years of interesting personal interactions and building a number of other things besides backpacks and just being able to uh, learn. Um, Rent was relatively cheap. The town at the time was uh, somewhat commercially deserted, and uh, well, we had mountains and rivers and visitors coming through. So on a small scale, it actually worked. Um, and when you're actually building something, there is a sweet spot where if you're building this stuff yourself, you can actually probably make a living especially if you're selling it direct, not trying to scale or do wholesale. Once you have decided you're going to go wholesale or start scaling things, you have a really uncomfortable period if you're doing this self-supporting, where for the first three, four, five people you're hiring, it's not going to support itself near as well as if you're trying to juggle everything yourself. It's... So were you still at this point sewing everything yourself? Uh, the first few uh, weeks and months I was. And uh, with Clutterworks, it was three years before we tried to do anything wholesale that reduced our margins from working at a full retail price. Did you so, – uh, how are you – what year was this? Because this sounds like it was before, you know – online stores so how are you (laughs) (laughs) how are you getting the product out were you only selling it locally in bozeman young man this was 1975 we didn't have i mean arpanet had transmitted (laughs) its first bites about six years before that um and i actually was uh, getting active online through bulletin boards and the such 
uh, in the early days uh, before the web in the late 80s when we thought 1,200 bowed was something because <laughs> uh, I had started at 300 bowed and we were simply dealing with ASCII type. Um, by the way, it was amazing the people you could run into in those days. Uh, if you were online at that time, uh, you had already uh, proven yourself, well, deeply weird. <laughs> In any case, no, this was absolutely pre-crowdfunding, pre-web. Um, this was simply, you know, physical face-to-face uh, uh, -face and meet space. But the principles really seriously apply. Um, now, in actual point of fact, I made a number of basic mistakes, many of which we were able to uh, learn from, recover from, expand from. But in that early business, even though we actually were making a living, when it was time to scale, I made a basic error of taking on a partner that... Uh, put some money into it that wasn't really uh, his and uh, was a charming, charming fellow who turned out to have some of that charm coming out of, well, this was the 70s, out of a bottle. Hmm. And there are times when you make a mistake of that sort and you have to deal with uh, the realities afterwards. This was a great little pack line. I actually was uh, doing other work at the time and, uh, that we had taken in for starting to package photographic gear, which was not part of the pack line. Um, and frankly, we reached a point where I couldn't buy him out. And uh, I saw disaster looming, and so I took the best deal I could get. And so I had uh, three years' worth of experience. I had uh, an idea of what to do in the future, but I actually got $6,000 and a sewing machine uh, to get out of this thing. And uh, they thought I was uh, crazy and were glad to be rid of me. And I saw a way forward taking some of the techniques I had uh, learned and applying it to camera bags and the like, carrying photographic gear in the field. That turned into our first million dollar business. Uh, it's worth noting, the Clutterworks two years later went bankrupt, was uh, bought out of bankruptcy, reconstituted, and went bankrupt again in another year. <laughs> um, so I guess I had a little bit of a vision of the future for as uh, little true business experiences I actually had. Um, so what did you name this new venture doing camera bags? Well, Mojo Systems. Okay, and what, what year was that? That was 1978. Okay, and and what what made you switch from, why didn't you just do another gear, like, you know, outdoor backpack type Like brand? more backpacks? Yeah. Uh, a little thing called a... Uh, non-compete agreement, mm -hmm. which I signed a five-year non-compete for, uh, you know, the money and the sewing machine and 
actually being able to use some of the Clutterworks' facilities evenings. It wasn't uh, an incredibly acrimonious breakup. I just knew the conditions weren't right to succeed in some sort of mm, dimly perceived way. Uh, as it turns out, within six months, I had uh, gotten out of the house where I'd been working for uh, a while, again, to conserve precious money, and uh, got into a larger tin building and uh, started into production, where I started discovering other interesting uh, problems and errors. Uh, I was trying to run the entire business. I was designing the gear, selling the gear, trying to order the materials, writing the paychecks, and uh, we ended up with uh, almost a million dollar backlog in orders. And in trying to run everything myself, we kind of were stuck at, at the time producing about 20,000 worth of stuff a month. Which meant that even though you could look at the backlog and go, wow, we must be great, we were in reality, um, well, the only words for it was pissing off our dealers. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's a big backlog if you're only doing, you know, basically one-fifth of what you need to be doing every year. Huge backlog, but I mean, it blew up on us. And obviously, taking more sales in was, you know, something that you would grab while you could. Um, that was when I ended up having another really basic uh, set of lessons delivered, which is you cannot control every single thing across a business. You have to end up empowering employees uh, to actually do things. Um, this may not sound remarkable, but you know, hey, I had control of everything. I was telling everybody what to do. And uh, it was uh, a little bit of a bitter pill to realize I was going to have to split this job up because I just wasn't good enough to do it. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I think that's a common struggle for people. So I've got a couple of questions about that. The, at this point, were you guys sewing everything in-house? Absolutely. So you had some people helping you with that. You weren't still doing uh, all the sewing, At that time, we right? were up to uh, probably 15 or 20 people. So what were some of the first major things then that you realized you needed to delegate, and how did you how'd you figure that out? Well, I mean, I'd love to tell you it was a cerebral exercise, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was simply the different ways, month by month, that I ended up failing to anticipate delays in shipping for uh, materials coming in, finding the right packaging, um, dealing with the realities of some of your customers are going to be lousy pay, um, and many different things. In the end, I was hugely, hugely blessed, I'd have to say, by having a person who I had been working with uh, who had been uh, basically wrangling the sewing floor, being the supervisor there, and being uh, an extremely 
mm, responsible person. And, you know, I'd been around, you know, small businesses and the like, stuff that had run from the words of a single person. And uh, I didn't know how to approach splitting these responsibilities up. So ultimately, I had a meeting where I, I had to ask if this person, whose name is Renee Sipple Baker, and is in fact the other partner in Mystery Ranch, and was the other partner in Dana Design, which was uh, the business that came after this one. Um, and she was not a partner in Mojo Systems, but became the, well, laugh at this one, the Minister of Internal Affairs. <laughs> I appointed myself the Minister of External Affairs. And we divided up responsibilities. And it was one of the scariest things I have ever done to actually relinquish this kind of control over a large part of the business. Um, and, you know, I mean, she enforced upon me that she was going to have to own those responsibilities uh, for ordering the material, for getting the stuff actually built on the floor, for getting it cut, for getting it packaged up and ready to ship. Uh, all of the internal production responsibilities, or what I would refer to as keeping the promises. Hmm. I designed the gear, I sold the gear, I prepared the marketing materials, and, uh, oh yeah, it was still my part to collect the debts. And I can always recommend that you need to have someone who is connected with sales always collecting the debts the sale isn't complete until you have been paid so you so you guys have and maybe it's different now let me know but like for instance i'm thinking with bike rumor like i don't think i would try and get my ad sales guy to pay to act as a collections agent as well like i i do the bookkeeping so you know if somebody's past due i'll i'm the one pinging out the reminders and doing the credit card billing and all that but you would say, have your salespeople act as the collection agent? Well, not, not necessarily as the collection agent, but your salespeople have to be aware that if you, if, they don't, if you don't get paid, they shouldn't get paid. When you are dealing with an extended sales system, it's the easiest thing in the world to be selling stuff to people who may or may not be actually paying for it right and if you have a a a serious uh, dealer relationship going on uh, for it to continue you are going to have to get paid yeah you don't want to keep sending product to somebody that's uh, not paying their bills I mean I've, I've made that mistake before and lost my ass on that oh yeah well and one of the corollaries to this is if you are out there doing business uh, if you are planning a business, you need to engage in the careful selection of customers. <laughs> and frankly speaking, virtually every business out there could benefit by cutting off the worst 5 to 10% of the customers because they are most likely costing you serious money. 
whether it is in attention you have to pay to them um, or if they simply aren't paying their bills. It's, it was a very difficult lesson to learn that not all sales are a benefit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a a good lesson. It's like I don't know if you've read um, Four Hour Work Week from Tim Ferriss. It's something he drives home too. He's like, I just you know he focused on the top like ten percent of his customers and spent his time growing their sales instead of trying to eke out a couple extra sales from the ones that were you know required hundred and ten percent more effort for a fraction of the sales volume. For a fraction of the return. Yeah. Although, seriously, some of your biggest customers might well be also costing you money instead of actually contributing to, dare I say it, the bottom line. Yeah. Is there a particular like metric or kind of rule that you guys have in place now that helps you figure that out early on before you waste a lot of time on a bad customer? Well... In many cases, we're dealing with classes of customers. And in many cases, we're dealing with folk who are selling direct on the web, which is one of the things that makes doing uh, business on a smaller scale uh, extremely possible these days. But, uh, you know, you have to have uh, some way of being sure you've got your payment before you're sending the product out or if you've got something that is working at a larger scale with wholesale pricing, uh, something that assures that your uh, dealers are going to uh, be making that payment. You know, we operate these days in several different realms. We build gear for wildland firefighters. In addition to building gear, we sell through stores. And we also, uh, you know, sell on the web uh, directly. Um, how you juggle all that is an art form that belongs to today, and everybody is having to relearn it on a one to two year at a time scale, which I regard as uh, not a bad thing. Right. Well, you mentioned different classes of customers, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like with the product now with Mystery Ranch, you know, like. If you didn't explain it, I would say you're probably talking about big box like REI, small mom and pops like, you know, we've got Blue Ridge Outdoors here locally. And then you've got... Uh, you you had Blue Ridge Outdoor. Oh. <laughs> They're uh, out of business a year ago. Uh, and that's part of the evolution that's going on right now. Brick and mortar is something that helps us a very great deal, having people able to touch the gear. But the other part of it is, it's an expensive way to do business. Why is um, that? Uh, let's see. The brick, the mortar, <laughs> uh, and the personnel. And the having to buy stuff. You know, I mentioned that, oh, I've got to get paid, etc. Guess what? They have to pay in a lot of cases before they've actually sold the gear, too. Now... You can go, oh, it's an archaic way of doing things, but they're performing a service properly uh, uh, done, properly leveraging how they actually exist by showing your stuff. Right. So you, when you say uh, it's expensive businesses, it's expensive for the shop owner. Is it an expensive 
way for you guys to operate being a supplier to those mom and pops? Uh, if enough of them go out of business, uh, it could be very expensive. Um, mind you, there are a whole group of stores that in the advice they uh, supply, in the service they supply, actively, uh, you know, uh, add value. Right. You know, if you're selling direct, the fact that uh, a shop really needs to be able to mark up their uh, prices by 40%, call it almost by uh, having to double uh, to price, you know, that seems like, oh, that's really expensive. I could save all that money. But hey, if you're selling direct on the web, you're having to redesign your website multiple times. You're having to hold the stock. And uh, it is uh, also quite expensive. You can get into certain uh, areas of scale, but that only really starts happening as you're hitting seven figures and more. Um, one of the bits of advice for me had been, you know, until you have actually hit six to seven million a year, you don't truly have scale and the ability to start experimenting uh, coming in. Now, your mileage may vary by uh, other business models, but scale doesn't happen until you are uh, dealing in the uh, millions as opposed to 100,000, 200,000. You know, we look at uh, GoFundMes or whoever's funding mechanism for uh, different uh, actual material products. And in most cases, they are ludicrously low uh, for trying to actually get the uh, product built. Um, you mean, it is the not a virtual... people, the, you mean the amount of money people are asking for on these crowdfunding platforms? Yes. Okay. Uh huh. And sometimes they hit big and they got something a lot of people want and you can base something off of that. But uh, in an awful lot of cases, they're asking for 50000 80000 And yeah, they meet their subscription. But is it truly enough to get a run of stuff done at actual industrial scale? You can't build in runs of 100 and expect to uh, do anything uh, beyond support yourself really as an individual. Uh, beyond that. It's uh, very interesting to watch. And I speak as someone who has built businesses from single-person scale and gone up. I've also built businesses with a reasonable amount of investment. And I have to tell you, I have frankly done better starting with almost no money and having to keep uh, my... Uh, my big ideas very, very close to the reality in front of me. Right. Um, well, let's, um, I feel like we're kind of glossing over your namesake brand, Dana Designs, and, and talking a lot about how you're operating now with Mystery Ranch. I, so I want people to just kind of understand that that timeline. If you can tell us just real quick, like how did it go from Mojo to Dana Designs and then Mystery Ranch? Okay, trying to gloss over it quickly. Um, from 78 through 1985, Mojo Systems, which actually the name evolved to Quest Systems for uh, a couple of funny reasons. 
Um, we started building camera bags really as people actually understand them now. Up to that point, the thing you put a camera in was probably a cardboard box or a leatherette-covered cardboard-based piece that went right over the camera. Um, we went to producing nylon with foam in it and different innovative ways to hang it on the body uh, in a modular system. Um, and uh, that was something that was an artifact of the time. People did not have what we referred to as point-and-shoot cameras. To do a quality picture, you got a single-lens reflex camera, um, versions of which still exist now. You got a couple or three lenses. You got a flash. Maybe you got a motor winder to advance the film. Um, and you had this whole collection of gear. And people kind of talk themselves into, oh, I'm producing images, there's art involved. But the reality is, it was too much trouble to be taking pictures of your kids at the time. And we're not even getting to the point where phones have replaced cameras now. So we produced bags that were suitable for pros to use, suitable for climbers and skiers to use in the field. One of the things we actually did, and this will tell you how old the, the, the age was. We, this was before Sony made the Walkman. <laughs> so we're here in a ski town, and a few people have cobbled together, get ready for this, an 8-track tape player, a nickel cadmium battery, and generally... This, again, is something really old. There used to be headphones that were on airliners that consisted of two tubes of plastic. Oh, man, and I remember it, those. Oh, yeah. So this was all put together for the first personal music systems. And, I mean, it was a car, a track tape deck, and the battery weighed as much. And we were putting these things together on chest packs so <laughs> that someone could, you know, radical notion of radical notion be playing the Beatles and skiing the bumps. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were doing uh, projects like that that really cobbled together bits of technology and we packaged it so people could use it. But, I mean, we were getting around things that uh, really technology needed to be put together to replace. Um, we did it with the first... Uh, you know, Apple II computers. We packaged this stuff with a uh, CRT monitor into uh, what I could only call a luggable configuration. We may have been the first to be doing stuff that would let the early Macs be carried. Um, we built some of the first gear for carrying uh, video stuff. And all of this was hacking technology in ways so that it could be carried or used on the human body uh, for day-to-day -day equipment. This came back multiply for us at Mystery Ranch, but this was serving out a five-year non-compete. Now, by the time my old Clutterworks thing had gone out of business the second time, I didn't feel bound by the non-compete, and we started playing with building packs again. 
And we had actually gotten into using high-density polyethylene plastics as an impact layer on these camera and video bags. And uh, we were starting to use fiberglass battens out of sails to serve as part of the frame of the pack to transfer load. And we ended up getting into a number of different materials and getting into the understanding of cushioning versus impact resistance and foams. And that allowed us to bring in a lot of technology that was not really associated with camping gear when I created the prototypes for the first stuff that became my Dana design packs. So I'm kind of curious, like, how did you get into that? Were you an avid outdoorsman, hiker, camper? Oh, absolutely. I was okay. out here at Bozeman for the skiing, the climbing, backpacking. Um, skiing took over my life for a number of years. And when I came out here, I was simply a cross-country skier on low-cut boots and wood skis with 75 millimeter bindings and started uh, going up to the local ski hill and using the gear there. And this was before people had actually rediscovered Telemark turns. So you were the customer you were trying to serve with your products? Absolutely. Right and, and then what was the, um, I guess, I don't know, demise or did you just totally stop doing the camera bags and switch. Well, the demise was the demise was first off that the Japanese developed what we call auto autofocus cameras uh, instead of big old single lens reflex cameras that you would hand focus looking down through the lens through a mirror and all that, which look like uh, the uh, professional digital cameras of today. Um, people started getting smaller cameras that cost maybe a hundred bucks and overnight sales of the single lens reflex stuff dried up. It was still being used by news people and pros and for art, but the actual huge unmet demand was for a better camera than a plastic Kodak Instamatic that you could still use and have in your shirt pocket. Now, the idea of having it in your shirt pocket is laughable today. We have the phone in our shirt pocket. But back then in 19, uh, call it 80, um, no, it was a uh, revolution. And instead of needing either a modular camera bag set up that you could ski with and would be harnessed on your body so you could get the separate pieces, or very protective large camera bags, suddenly you just needed a little $10 foam pocket instead of a $100 large group of uh, bags, which sort of changed the economics of the whole thing. Right. Um, Low Pro, which still builds camera bags to this day, and we had been for several years basically growing at the same rate and the same size at, they ended up going offshore into Central America at the time. We kind of had an attraction to building higher-end gear for professionals and liked producing in the United States, but the economics made that whole thing go away. We had partnered with a photographic distribution company 
um, in the uh, mid-80s, we simply came to an agreement where they could take that stuff, go offshore with it. We collected a little bit of money at the end for the design stuff, and we ended up founding Dana Design in August of 1985. We actually uh, booked a grand total of $70,000 worth of business in the following uh, four months of the year. And that was our start. And it sounds pretty lean, and it was pretty lean. But we had a manufacturing plant, and I had a vision. And the, where was the plant? Still in Bozeman, or had you uh, started listen, outsourcing I, production? I, um, we didn't really outsource production for many years more. Uh, but I was then, you know, the, the value cycle of camera bags was really reduced when it came down to you need a $10 pocket to hold your little bitty point and shoot, which, you know, might have been the size of a phone today, but, you know, maybe an inch and a quarter thick. Um, so, I mean, the price of what it took to package the uh, image uh, stealing device of the time went way down because the size of the device went way down. Um, definitely that stuff needed to be brought in offshore. Now, I started building backpacks. I was building computer bags and many other things that had a relatively short design cycle. In other words, the product could change in a six-month span. And so being closer to the point of sale, being closer to the users, still made a lot of sense and allowed us to continue building stuff. At Dana Design, we built stuff in the Montana uh, and scaled it up for a very long time, until 1997. And at that point, we had 250 people spread among three plants, one in Bozeman, a smaller one in Livingston, Montana, to tap that labor source 25 miles away, and another one at a very interesting small town called Lewiston, Montana, that uh, was, uh, I don't know, 170 miles away. And uh, that really uh, gave us some interesting lessons in the logistics of having separate locations doing things. But we were making good money then. Um, we had built Dana Design from that $70,000 first uh, partial year into a $7 million a year business by the time 1994 came around. Nice. And one of the key lessons there was as we went from 30 people to 200, 250 people, we had to change how we ran the business multiple times. And we basically had to learn that as we were doing it. What were some and, of the big changes you had to make? Well, I mean, you don't multiply your volume by 10 by adding 10 times as many people. You have to scale. Meaning um, each person has to be more productive? I. Yes. Also, there are a whole lot of centralized jobs where one person or a large fraction of one person could be doing it when you are at 
a half million a year and that person could still be doing it or even more jobs when you're at seven million a year but you have to keep on looking at how you're putting this whole thing together and again this was a tremendous amount of stuff that Renee controlled and we were reading journals we were reading Deming uh, on quality by the way um, when you start uh, dealing with lean manufacturing when you start dealing with uh, the different uh, methods of quality control uh, when you start dealing with oh six sigma and other stuff that dates me a little bit but is still very influential you are dealing with the stuff that was developed by an American called Deming back in the 1940s and the Japanese actually have an award called the Deming Award because his work was then turned into what is also known as the Toyota system also known as the Kanban system and uh, almost everyone who has written business books touching on this since then has filed the serial numbers off of Deming's work <laughs> and packaged it as big new revolutionary ideas. Um, go back to some of the basics like reading Deming and uh, you can cut out a huge amount of people who are, uh, well, simply repackaging ideas that have been very good for a very long time. How would you repackage it? What were some of the, the key lessons that you took from that read those readings and applied to Dana designs and then how have you continued to carry those or change those with mystery well, a couple of key things if you are doing some mass production of your own you have to limit the amount of work in process as much as possible if your batch size is two or three weeks or a month's worth of your shipping you need to split that up so that you have more like a day, two days, three days worth of work at a time on your floor. Otherwise, you just end up with huge mounds of stuff that have tied up a huge amount of value. You just mean like excess inventory taking up space? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and excess inventory can be finished goods. But what's really deadly is when your excess inventory is work in process. As your finished goods, at least, you can knock out of there with a sale if you need to uh, right. or make a special deal or a price. Uh, the gear, the stuff that has made the transition from raw materials uncut to being work in process, well, your raw materials uncut uh, still have some real value. Your work in process, while it may have uh, value on your books, has zero value in the real world and you are simply investing money in it until it poof magically becomes finished and saleable <laughs> but up to that point it's simply a cash sink and uh, cash is something that uh, really you want to conserve as much as you possibly can right so when you guys had so it sounds like there's kind of three stages you've got bulk raw materials and then like I'm just going to say you had this one particular fabric that had been cut to shape for a particular skew and then you've mm -hmm. got finished products. So is, is that accurate? Yes. And it's that middle step that's kind of the one you got to watch out for it sounds like. Oh yeah. So because it, it's simply 
soaking up cash right. and time and all sorts of things that are not actually giving you a return. So were you guys, like with the bulk raw materials, were you trying to use the same fabrics and the same big pieces on as many bags as possible so that you could just kind of cut a couple here, cut a couple there? Or? Um, certainly uh, the same types of fabric. Um, in terms of multiplication, multi multiplication of skews, yeah, that that was relatively speaking uh, not a problem. From those processes and uh, like sales and everything, what did you take with you? Because and to fill people in, you guys sold Dana Designs in two thousand five. Is that right? We sold Dana Design in nineteen ninety five to. What was called K2 Corporation, uh, basically a uh, conglomerate, but uh, they had the folks who made the skis as their most uh, famous brands, so they took that on as their identity. And we did it in large part because we were fulfilling the mandate of the market at the time in the specialty shops, the high-end uh, outdoor and climbing and skiing shops we were selling in. We were, at the time, over 55 to 60% of the market. We didn't think that, I mean, you're going to get into diminishing returns. You're not going to own all of the market. And so we were faced with a question of, do we build more different things in addition to packs and sell to the same people? Or do we build packs at a cheaper price and for a less committed demographic than hardcore skiers and climbers and spread out to a lot more shops. And these are bet the company decisions. And instead of making those you guys sold or? Well, instead of, you know, and, you know, if you aren't growing, you are most likely shrinking and we had gotten to a point where, yeah, we could keep on trying to get a few more points of market share, but you can't dominate everything. You've got to pick what you're good at and who you're working with. Right. Um, and so it made some sense to connect with a larger set of companies that had really trained management talent and at the time the organization was set up so you could uh, tap into that you could borrow people from other companies you could go to some of the sister companies and learn and the gentleman who had put this whole organization together had been active for a long time he was in his 80s Soon after he acquired Dana Design, and you know we were happily comparing notes and gathering up knowledge, he became chairman emeritus. He withdrew from day-to-day -day activities uh, of the uh, overall company, and he died. Oh, so, oh yeah. And when that happened, the CFO of the company ended up becoming the CEO. And he proclaimed a new basic reason for the existence of the overall conglomerate. We're here to enhance shareholder value. Hmm. 
Now, if anyone ever tells you that, hey, we're here to advance uh, shareholder value, this is just practical advice. But I would say you should either shoot or run. <laughs> so we started having to put in very aggressive growth plans. Uh, we had to start reporting and religiously making things happen for every quarter, which also means you start, I wouldn't say quite fudging the books, but you do definitely need to be presenting a somewhat edited version of reality. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, and then you also start dealing with other people getting substituted in to your company. By the way, the fourth great lie, and the three great lies are a great dirty joke. You'll have to get that elsewhere. But the fourth great lie is when someone who bought your company says, we love what you're doing. We don't want to change a thing. <laughs> That's another point at which you have to start going, oh, I've made a bad mistake. <laughs> so what was the, it sounds like then you were on contract to remain with the company for a while than if you were still I working had a, with them. I had, guess again, guess some things just go around and around. I had a five-year non-compete and I was still president of the company. But once you're into a larger uh, corporate uh, organization, um, guess what? You don't control the politics anymore. This is not a, uh, you know, a remarkable discovery or anything. It's just reality. Um, and uh, you have to start dealing with what the overall political matrix of the organization deems important. Um, one of the things I discovered is uh, I'm way better at defining what my little part of the world, my little company, what I'm trying to accomplish uh, can do, as opposed to playing within the political matrix of a larger organization. Right. Um, this is called being unemployable, <laughs> and I uh, glory in it. I actually first became unemployable, well, when I ended up getting my $6,000 in the sewing machine for uh, Clutterworks, I would guess. Uh, I was simply cut out to be figuring out these problems and going forward. I wasn't necessarily what anyone else would have hired to do that, but we've created several companies, so I guess I'm reasonably good at it. All right. So I got a couple well, questions about the the K2 thing. You said that they changed the name and brand rebranded the bags and everything as K2 when they bought it? Um, well, no. No, that didn't happen. Oh, okay. Um, uh, they kept the whole thing going as Dana Design. My business partner left in two years when uh, they made us, uh, even though we were making good money, uh, close our Montana plants. And I left two years after that in the uh, aftermath of not really having a way to create good supervisors and quality control people who could keep our production uh, standards up to snuff going to worldwide production. Um, now, there are many cases, like in the electronic world, where specialized assembly companies work great. 
um, and virtually all camping gear is done by specialized uh, assembly companies. We call them contractors in Asia. <coughs> and nowadays at Mystery Ranch, over half our production comes uh, from those kind of companies. But the only way we can maintain our actual quality levels for the folk who are in fact depending on our gear is by having our own production plant that where we produce the stuff ourselves we are able to absolutely define what the product is with complete design not simply rendering a sketch and having other people uh, do different versions that are bouncing back and forth um, and it is core to us to have our own small production plant, about 45 uh, production people, which is small in the scheme of things, believe me. Uh, a sizable Asian plant will have two to 3,000 people. But it is enough so that we can keep the skill set internalized and we know what we're talking about when we are hitting up our production partners, whether in the U.S. or in Asia, to build it the way we want it to be built, to so, give us stuff that will last for decades, not for a year or two. Right. So for the the things that you send to Asia, is you don't own the plants in Asia, though. You just... Right. I don't own most of the plants I work with in the U.S. either. We okay. work with them on a contract basis. And it sounds attractive that, oh, I've got several, and they compete against each other, and you know they get us the lowest price. Anytime you're absolutely pushing relentlessly for the lowest price, you will keep getting a lower price. <laughs> but you will not have the same product you started with because they're not lowering those prices uh you know, simply because you, Mr. Big American, are pounding the table. Yeah. So what do you provide them? Like, how do you ensure that quality control? Do you have people on site all the time? Do you, do uh, we, you guys we order them in raw materials? We many times a year. We have a person or two that it's on site, a hundred, you know, 100% of the time. We have raw material inspection as part of the whole process. Um, we are an ISO 9001 registered company, and we found that uh, ISO 9001, which is not a set of absolute rules, it is how you document your quality system, your production system, in ways where it is, you can always refer to the actual standard. And... For us, ISO 9001 was an important turning point in giving us a framework to hang our quality system on. Um, it is also something when uh, we were starting to deal with life-critical uh, products uh, that uh, became uh, required. But in our case, it was not something we grudgingly grabbed uh, in order to be able to build some life critical products. It became something that uh, is uh, part of the rules of the game for us and how we play. All right. When you say life critical, you just mean like climbing stuff where you're holding the body. Climbing stuff, <laughs> medical stuff, stuff for wildland firefighters. Okay. So I want to go back a little bit to one of the things you said about the time when you guys got to the point where you're 
were acquired and you were making some decisions about like, well, we can make different things or we can grow by offering different price point and quality levels for a, a different type of consumer. And it sounds like you did not take that path. And I'm curious, do you think offering we took both paths? Oh, okay. So did and offering we... different price things or different levels of things diminish the like cachet Ultimately, of Dana designs at the high end? It didn't diminish the cachet of Dana, but nor did we really succeed with expanding the market with uh, a new label that we took on called Wilderness Experience, which had been a relatively famous outdoor company in the, call it uh, mid-70s through the 80s that had fallen on hard times. Um, and coincidentally, I had been a sales rep for in the early 70s. Uh, that was something that we were then going to try and revive the name and Frankly, it was a good name in its time, but simply trying to revive something that you once knew is a very expensive proposition, not a no-brainer, and uh, we learned some lessons there. Um, rather than split up your name or your identity for different markets, you are far better off maintaining one identity, and it is difficult enough to get one label known so that there's generally very little to be gained from having two or three different identities say for spreading across different markets yeah so how does that i mean it, it seems like that's why big companies acquire smaller ones so they don't have to go build a brand from scratch you know they let you prove it and then take it on well, that certainly seems to make sense. Um, and I have to confess that, you know, we have looked at taking on companies and other specialties. But frankly, we have a little too much respect for someone who's been doing a good job to try and just buy it and run it because, well, professionally speaking, we're more likely to screw it up. Right. Speaking uh, of the experience over the years, most times a brand is bought, you don't succeed with scaling. Yeah, it, it sounds like if you're not buying it to be additive, you're only buying it to kind of as a greedy move to grow your own market share in some way. It's yeah. uh, The passion's not there, right? Like that's why you're successful with your brands is because you're really passionate about what you're building. And when that passion's gone, it's... You know, you can tell a lot of times. Uh, you can absolutely tell. It is worth noting that when I left Dana Design, I was making six figures. Hey, my name was on the company, um, but I'm kind of spoiled. And when it <laughs> ceased to be part of my personal identity, well, who would want to be hanging around a fat guy whining about how he isn't happy about it anymore? So I left. Um, and thanks for Douglas Adams for the closing line of my uh, resignation letter. Uh, thanks for all the fish. <laughs> <laughs> so when the, the five-year non-compete with Dan Designs was up, why start another bag company? I didn't intend on it. I, I, I had retired at age 48. I had my full retirement fund. I ended up skiing 
75 days of powder that year out of 105 days skiing. But you want to know a horrible thing? Sure. I didn't have the moral fiber to make it stick. It got to be like skiing was work. (laughs) And then I ended up, I still had a few sewing machines. And uh, I had a daughter ask me to just build her a simple little project. And I did. And unlike the end days at Dana Design, it felt good again. And so we got certain elements of the band back together and had some big ideas about how to bring the next iteration of Dana Design to market. And we had already grown Dana Design back in the early 80s, so I figured we knew how to do it. Small problem. While we had some great product, and I think I already mentioned you've got to have great, absolutely wonderful product to have the first 20 to 25% of your business. Well, as it turns out, the nature of the outdoor specialty dealer had changed and shifted a great deal. And when we started and got into the market, there was a lot of press written on it dealers lined up, but we actually had something that was relatively complex to sell. And most specialty dealers had gone from having people in their mid-30s who were hugely committed to outdoor, whether they were climbers or backpackers or skiers. Most shops had shifted to hiring high school kids for, say, minimum wage plus a dollar or two. And training them to be able to say, hi, may I help you within a minute of people coming in? But otherwise, these were kids who were avoiding the smell of the fry grease at McDonald's. (laughs) They didn't really know a hell of a lot about the gear. And uh, the other thing that had happened then was eBay was ripping. And dealers had become convinced, and a number of them properly so, that if they didn't sell someone something right then when they were in the store, they were absolutely going to buy it online and undercut the dealer, which meant that the dealer had ceased to form relationships with customers in many cases. Right. And guess what? At that point, yeah, you might as well buy it on eBay. And what year was this? What year did you launch Mystery Ranch? we, We launched in 2000. I actually spent the bulk of 1999 engineering the new line. I was under the non-compete, but the non-compete simply meant you couldn't sell this stuff. They can't keep you from thinking about it. So, and that's that's actually longer than I thought. I, I didn't realize you guys had started that long ago. So it's, um, I oh, mean, yeah. that was really, it was internet time, but kind of pre-social media and stuff. So Pre-social media and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was... You didn't have to have a website really at that time. And, uh, you know, beyond something like eBay, direct sales weren't happening. And also part of our thing at Dana Design was we only sold through dealers because you needed to get a personal fit. And it really helped to have a presence there. We continued that with the first iteration of Mystery Ranch. Um, And 
ultimately we found that the dealers, uh, even when we were referring orders to them, they weren't trying to sell our stuff and order it in if they didn't have it in stock. They were, again, I got to get their money right now, right now, sell them something, anything off that wall. How do you combat so, that? And how do you now? Because it's, it really, I think that problem's you only gotten worse. You want to know how worse. we actually <laughs> combated it? First off, they told us, no, nobody's ever going to buy a pack for three or $400 again. So you have to start building in Asia. And we ended up starting to build in China. We also had a modular system, and I don't want to go into the whole set of specifics of a business plan that uh, didn't work right <laughs> here and now, but uh, ultimately the way we combated it is we fired the whole dealer base in 2004 after several years that didn't break a million dollars a year. And we fired the whole dealer base because the longer we tried to support people who weren't supporting us back, the more money we expended. And when we fired the dealer base, we had created a $3 million smoking hole in the ground. Uh, holy retirement fund, Batman. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. And your house is on the hook, too. Um, so we had to start figuring out a business plan that would work. And in short, that business plan turned into, we need to build stuff for people who need what we do, which is build gear that will carry well all day. Now, the outdoor market had a fair amount of that, but ultralight was coming on. People were not carrying uh, big loads uh, for a one or two week trip anymore. Almost everybody had shortened up to be doing either overnight trips or if they were doing something big like the Appalachian Trail, they were doing much more resupply and they were uh, getting into a much lighter load, which sounds great if you're just carrying the stuff to sustain you in the field. If you needed to be carrying gear, if you needed to be carrying more than 20 pounds, people still at heart needed what we do. Now, we ended up with uh, elements of uh, the Navy SEALs and Special Forces buying some of my Dana Design stuff and using it throughout the 90s. And there is a lock that all the Berry Amendment that dates from World War II that requires that the U.S. military use gear that was U.S. materials and built in the U.S. And that actually gave us a reason to still be building the stuff ourselves. And, uh, man, it felt good to get that under control. The stuff we built in China, we had to do lots of repair work on before we sold it. It was uh, very difficult to get good quality done. And, uh, well, there's a number of lessons and stories to be learned there that uh, aren't going to fit in this cast. Um, but we ended up starting to find people for whom we could solve problems and make a difference. And that is a very, very addictive thing. It means what you're doing matters. Man, and it allowed I, I, us to uh, survive on a smaller scale for a while. 
So how did you do that? And I've got questions about retail because I saw your stuff in a retail store in Bozeman this past summer when we were up there on our family road trip. Well, actually, for from 2004 through 2015, we didn't wholesale to any companies in the U.S. We had our website, and we've been active on the web selling our stuff since 2005. And uh, when you're selling the stuff direct, you can make the full margin. And we had uh, over a year's worth of stock built and sitting there that we hadn't tried to wholesale through uh, wholesale shops. And then we were building new projects and uh, doing a lot of problem solving for other groups of people. It was uh, doing stuff for the U.S. military for the most part, 2005, six, and seven. In 2008, we ended up starting to build for wildland fire people, uh, hot shots and smoke jumper crews. Um, and in actuality, once we started building gear for professional people who really needed it, we ended up uh, winning a competition for uh, doing some packs for special forces, a technical competition, not a price-based competition. That gave us our first $1.6 million year. The following year, we grew to $4.6 million. The year after that, to $8.6. And the year after that, to eleven point six. million. It, it sounds like a lot of that was government contract stuff then, you know, if you're for armed forces time, and military. At the time, it was. But, you know, here is the thing. We were not doing build-to-print government contracts, which is what everybody thinks of. We were solving problems for different groups of people, building high-performance gear. And it was a unique time uh, in the U.S. military, being on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, especially uh, with uh, the folk in what we call SOCOM, Special Operations Command, uh, demanding a better level of gear than uh, the U.S. Army was uh, building for the general level of troops. And the interesting thing there was everybody was getting onto forums and figuring out what was better gear and looking at that and starting to try and get it. And uh, it was a very fortunate time to be advancing the uh, technical level of gear. And let's make this clear. We built stuff that reduced the number of injuries that people had. We built stuff that made them feel a little better at the end of the day, maybe a lot better. And we built some of the only stuff in the world, even now, that was built to work over body armor. Um, and the thing is, military folk carry anywhere from 18 to 30 pounds of armor almost all the time, and then they'll put 100 pounds over it. They need what we do. Um, so when you say you guys were excited about building something that met a need, are you talking about like finding these kind of special niches and special interest groups that need a very specific product and really tailoring it for them? Or are you talking more like consumer groups then? 
we went away from consumers. We became what we refer to as a mission-based organization. We were building gear for people who were going to have to go out there and use it, whether there was a forest fire, whether uh, you know it was raining, snowing, dust storm. Um, they were going to have to use it, and we were making things much better for them. How did you In find doing, those groups of people? Because it seemed like that's a really good strategy is find somebody who's underserved, even if it's a small niche, you know. Yep. How'd you find well, those a small groups? niche may be a $10 million niche. Right. And, you know, we knew some people from years before and folk were having, you know, problems getting what they needed and wanted early on. And we paid attention. Uh, a big part of what went on was they initially went to K2 to try and get stuff they'd already been getting and our friends, at, but it would have had to been built in America. But initially it was going to be a 1500 to 2000 piece order, which would have turned into over $10 million worth of business. And our friends at K2 said, we don't do government work. Hmm. And that was, you know, okay fine but you know what i do and uh i also knew where the intellectual property was which is to say on this particular product there weren't any i might add that yeah we've been filing uh patents and other things through several businesses and for many years but in the early days of these businesses we did not have the money to do that now we could go well, geez, that was a mistake that gave you the opening to uh, found, you know, the basis of Mystery Ranch later on. But the reality is, is when you are looking for something to sell to people, <coughs> physical objects especially, um, you know, you, you are dealing with a money-intensive process to uh, patent objects. And it's really expensive to defend that patent. Patents are not a defensive system. They only work as an offensive system if you have the money to go to the mattresses and fight something out once you've got a patent in court. There are no patent police to enforce your rights as a patent holder. There's only, uh, hire a lawyer, go at it again. And uh, seriously speaking, to do anything beyond writing a cease and desist letter, to do anything approaching court, you're looking, I used to say you're looking at 100,000. Nowadays, you're looking at a half million. That's You'd nice. better have something worth protecting. And when you're early on in a business, not so much. Now, software companies, stuff that are intellectual property only, yeah. That's cost of doing business, and you need to do it going forward. But uh, to tell you the truth, if you're dealing in physical objects or businesses, the stuff to really protect initially are your trademarks, are your identity. Because if that can be taken away, you've got nothing. What was the move from doing these you know, military and firefighter contracts to back into consumer goods well first off 
we had created a business that was at the time twice as big as Dana Design had ever gotten, and we were simply doing the military stuff. Now, here is another element to the whole equation, which is uh, luck. Uh, we actually were only selling on the web and through uh, contact, direct contacts with different user groups. And uh, we ended up in 2010 suddenly with Japanese showing up at our single small showroom at our plant. And the Japanese would walk in. And, you know, these are Japanese from Japan, like on tour at Yellowstone. And, you know, they for some reason, one checked us out and uh, bought everything in the shop right <laughs> out to the walls. Uh, two weeks later, another group showed up, did the same thing, asked if there were prototypes they could buy. We started making more T-shirts for them. Um, as it turns out, the stuff I had done at Dana Design had a very good reputation in Japan. And... Once the folk there realized that Dana-san was operating Mystery Ranch, oh, we must go get it. <laughs> now, as it turns out, Japanese really get into stuff that is, for lack of a better word, authentic. The real stuff. Gear. Not just marketable pieces of, uh, you know, the stuff that is uh, recreational gear. And what was happening is these folk were shipping this stuff over and it was getting sold in a group of stores that we refer to as select shops, which are specialty shops, kind of akin to, you know, men's accessory shops or fashion shops, hipster shops. Uh, and they were tripling their money. Jeez. So they were taking stuff that was an extremely expensive tool for military, like our three-day assault pack, which at the time, the U.S. build and materials sold for $289. And they were tripling their money. They were selling it for $900. And I went over there and saw stuff on the streets in Tokyo and Akihabara, and... Uh, we ended up realizing that this kind of thing sold on a fashion curve. Your sales would increase to a certain point, maybe over a couple of years, and then suddenly you're not fashionable anymore, and it would chop off. We ended up connecting with a distributor in Japan who sold to both these kind of shops and outdoor stores and cut a deal that we would stop selling to these amateurs in Bozeman and we would be exporting stuff to Japan and that worked out extraordinarily well. We ended up shifting uh, a few years later to uh, a very major distributor in Japan that had 34 of its own stores and with those folk we concocted a plan to where instead of simply selling the same stuff that we building for military or firefighters and a very few hunters and outdoor people that we sold direct. It was time for us to start building two collections a year, to start producing in Asia, to start 
producing in such a way where we could maintain our quality levels and they would start building the line as they had built other lines and uh, it's a great company it's called ANF stores in Japan and uh, they now uh, operate a mystery ranch store in Harajuku um, and uh, which is one of the most fashionable uh, shopping areas in Japan we opened it last April it was uh, an amazing experience and that gave us the basis to build an entire wholesale line that started approximately 2012 and we've been building it ever since the last two years we had an entire line so it was time to come back to the outdoor and hunting markets in America and we have been working our way up to actual uh, real presence across the country and Canada ever since so in any case we ended up getting pulled in on doing consumer goods again uh, through what could be described as uh, some happenstance. Right. Uh, I would describe it as uh, taking uh, some of the uh, opportunities along history had given me. Uh, ironically enough, when we first started working with uh, Japanese and Koreans, we had our first sales meeting over here in Montana at the ranch. And I'm a designer. I have an ego. I have examples of everything I have designed through the decades. And we showed these guys the Clutterworks line, the first stuff I ever built. They saw it. There was this strange sort of, well, tooth-sucking noise. And then it was, oh, Dana's on. We must have this. And we ended up taking... The very first line I ever did that had been moribund for 30 plus years and revising it slightly and selling that with our good old made in USA leather labels, uh, the whole pack made in the US. And uh, that became a fashion line. Hmm. Um, now, an interesting thing there was we explored how do we expand this and have a legitimate full-on fashion line. Well, as it turns out, an awful lot of the hipster fashion stores are very difficult to collect from. Um, they're great for exposure, but you either are cash on delivery or cash in advance. And if you do manage to expand enough to have a real fashion line, your reward is to sell through department stores that are extraordinarily difficult to do business with. So that is one area where we explored. We still build it, but we decided to pull back because it was purely a marketing play as opposed to working uh, with people who had a deep need for what we do. Now, we still sell Clutterworks, and... It would be five times bigger than it ever was at its peak as our little fashion line. But in terms of how things scale, that's eh, quite difficult to actually justify as an overall business proposition. Yeah. For, when, with Mystery Ranch, now that you've gone back to consumer retail, how, what are you doing differently this time around to prevent some of the past mistakes? Well, one of the key sets of things we learned is 
you have to build gear that works the way people will actually use it. Trying to build gear where you have to train them to be able to use it fully effectively is extremely difficult. So that's one of the huge differences between Mystery Ranch and Dana Design stuff and most of the packs in the market right now to get the maximum benefit from it these work naturally it requires a little more structure but uh and and perhaps uh not being able to be as ultralight as some other uh brands right now but uh it sure feels better on the back and that has given us uh, uh a number of edges for people who have to go out and use gear and as it turns out that has translated to being perceived, being uh, known as gear that is simply more comfortable. Um, and it works for us. From a marketing perspective, you know, we, we had a phrase that we have used for a long time internally, and that was built for the mission. And that's turned out to be something that we're identified by in uh, both the uh, hunting and outdoor worlds now. We do not build gear that is at heart recreational. At heart, at the core, we build gear that are tools. Now, we fit it into the recreational space, but it works better than most of the stuff that is simply built for recreational users who might be going out a week or two, you know, a week in a year. Okay, I, I've got one more gear question. Is it like for outdoor equipment gear? And you guys, I think, do some pretty intensive messenger bags as well. Is it yep. is it much like the fashion industry where you have to make aesthetic changes and color changes every season or even sometimes multiple times a year just to stay relevant? Or is it something uh, where you can design it once and until there's a real need to improve it, you can leave it? It's a little bit complex. There are some things where you'll be adding color choices throughout the year, usually in small day packs. Uh, our urban assault pack works that way. Uh, booty bag, uh, uh, very lightweight uh, uh, backpacks work that way. Um, in most of our more intense stuff, we will do design revisions at a minimum every third year. Uh, quite often every second year. It just all depends on do we have something worth saying. Um, we tend to build gear as opposed to something that people are going to buy you know, three, four times a year like uh, cheesy day packs. On the ones that you do change more often, how do you pick those colors? What do you guys do to ensure that it's you know, kind of stylish it, at the time? It used to be that I would pick the colors myself. And we discovered that, A, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> and then we started looking at how what I refer to as real companies do it. And there are consultants that actually work on this and work on uh, looking at what people on the street are doing. And they're able to predict couple of years ahead they're not always right but the other thing I discovered was by hiring a consultant you had someone outside the company to blame 
So you could, you know, every three or four years, you've got enough stuff that you had to put on sale where the colors weren't right. All right, when you finally feel bad about it, you fire them and start someone else as opposed to do a ritual sacrifice of somebody in the company. Uh, we've actually been very fortunate and working with an incredible person for the last six years. But yeah, not all colors uh, end up being a winner. Right. It, it is a crapshoot. Um, that's where we get into the difference between marketing and presentation and building gear. And we surf, you know, both those waves. What are a couple of pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who wanted to start up something similar, you know, some kind of gear company? Well, if they want to start up something similar, good luck, brother or sister, we're coming for you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, if you want to start doing something, you can do it. You're going to have a lot of different things array, arrayed against you. But the reality is, if you find something that needs doing, Take a hack at it. Um, I never tell people they can't do it. Um, it's difficult at times. Start small. Start doing something where you can make a, a little bit of cash go a long ways. Do as much of it you can yourself initially, as opposed to simply assume that you'll come up with an idea and then... Uh, you will find someone who can contract for you for small numbers and get it built. Um, it is not a turnkey thing to get products built, especially in small numbers. So you will have to fulfill as many slots within your organization yourself as you can at the beginning. What's one of the biggest challenges you guys face currently with Mystery Ranch? Um U.S. lending institutions tend to be pretty paranoid of overseas business, don't understand it, and the entire thrust of banking regulation since 2009 or 10 in response to the uh, housing crisis of 2008 has been to dumb down the risks that banks can take. So if you want to buy a house, they'll loan you on a house. If you want to buy a car, step right up. If you want to hit them with a business idea, oh, we're afraid. FDIC <laughs> will probably shut us down if we do anything outside of cars and houses. So as you scale upwards, it's very difficult to maintain control. Um, we've managed to do it, but actually dealing with the finances are one of the prime uh, problems in building a small to mid-sized business these days. And then when you say be the foreign business, is that because you're producing overseas or because you're selling to a distributor overseas or both? Yes, <laughs> both. Um, and we, uh, I mean, literally... Anywhere from 50 to 60% of our overall business comes from overseas. Wow. Um, you know, I love hearing about, ah, we're bringing all the production back to the U.S., etc. Um, that can work on a very small scale. But what we do 
overseas could only really be done economically viably overseas. Now, 40% of my business, which is hundreds of employees, <coughs> excuse me, um, we do here in the United States. And it is a very large percentage of our volume. But the, this business, if we were only dealing with what we could produce in the U.S., would be roughly 60% smaller than it is right now. That being said, doing a certain amount of our production in the United States is absolutely essential to the soul and the business plan of the company. How do you build adventure into your everyday life? You do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, uh, I was not in Bozeman to build backpacks. I was in Bozeman to ski for the first 15 years of my career here. And then I picked up snowboarding. I had been telemarking. Had I been doing nothing but skiing, I'd have gotten bored right out of it. Um, kayaking. Uh, now, I do a lot of uh, relatively high-speed motorcycle touring. Um, you, there is no substitute for getting out and doing it. Love it. Well, Dana, thanks, man. This is, it's been a long one. I appreciate you hanging in there and spending some time with us, sharing your story. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to cut together an hour out of all that crap. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, definitely easy. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Have fun. Thanks. It seems like with every episode, my show notes keep getting longer, and this one is no exception. There's so much to learn from Dana, so please check out those notes at thebuildcycle.com. I've summarized the key points with timestamps and analysis. For me, the real takeaway here is this. If you think you can do it, go for it. As Dana says, there is no substitute for getting out and doing it. Do something you're passionate about, do it as well as you possibly can, and solve problems for customers. If you're selling at retail, Dana points out several things to watch. Who's paying on time? Who's supporting and promoting your brand? And who can you use as a marketing tool? Yes, the right retailers can help validate your brand and products simply by having them in store. Did you know I post updates about my speaking gigs and appearances on social media? Be sure to follow at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get sneak peeks and updates, along with more bonus content. Thanks for listening. Here's hoping you're adapting and growing. Until next time, keep building. Keep building.